0: here are your hosts, Cynthia K.O. and Josh Carter. Welcome everybody. Happy Friday. You made it another week. Celebrate that. You made it another week. It is Friday. It is 1 p.m. on the West Coast. Welcome to the Veteran Founder podcast. I am your host, Josh Carter. And with me as always is Cynthia Kao. Cynthia, how's your week?
1: The week has been crazy, and I'm glad the weekend's here. That's yeah. all I'll say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I am with you there. I, I wish it was 5 o'clock so I can uh, you know, pretend that I don't have a drinking problem. But uh, either way, I'm excited that that the weekend's here. And this week, uh, we're really excited because we got a, a great uh, guest. But first, if you are unfamiliar with the show, welcome. Every week, we get to talk to these amazing entrepreneurs that have one extra thing on their resume, and that's service to our country. This week, we have a friend of Operation Code, Tim Marcinowski from Yeti Cloud. Uh, thanks for coming on, man. I'm really excited oh, to have me. you. Said, you know, you're you're a big contrib- contributor to the Operation Code community. I know Cynthia absolutely is a huge fan. Um, so I, I really just want to start this off as what where what branch did you serve in, and what did you do while you were there?
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, everybody, and I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, love the podcast. Uh, glad to be a part. Uh, listened to several episodes before. I'm uh, really excited to share my story with the community, and uh, I'm probably going to give uh, you know raw material right off the emotional cuff.
0: Let's do it. Um,
2: I served uh, in the United States Navy as an enlisted IT man from 2006 to 2010. So I served four years on a small boy, uh, did two deployments and one three-month surge. Uh, one was in South America. One was across uh, the world with a rural British-led uh, battle strike group, which was really cool. I think it was the second type of deployment of its kind. Um, and then, of course, when I did the surge, it was more of your Bahrain and Scotland, Ireland type of ports.
0: Yeah. When you, uh, I, I love the fact that we're talking to a fellow Navy guy. I was a quartermaster, so I was navigation. So a little different, but what was your experience like in the military and, and what surprised you about the experience?
2: Yeah. You know, my experience in military, it was awesome and horrible at the same time. You know, I have a very unique, uh, kind of introduction into the military. Just, you know, my first day on the ship. You know, there was a, a fellow serviceman who had committed suicide, and I actually had no idea that the ship had just came back from the yards, and we were bound to um next month. And uh, the really interesting thing in all of this is like, okay, a guy, you know, a fellow serviceman uh, committed suicide. Next month, we're going on deployment, but next week, we're going to Mardi Gras. So, it was like uh, very mixed emotions, right? I'm thinking, wow, I'm excited. I also don't want to go on a deployment. Uh, But what kind of ship am I getting uh, myself into, you know, if people uh, are unhappy? Uh, So, you know, it was it was a radical uh, introduction into the military. But my four years was pretty amazing uh, with the relationships that I built uh, and the connections that I fostered. And I still carry those relationships uh, today, whether it's working with universities um, or other types of corporations for partnerships.
1: Hey, Tim, I wanted to ask you, you know, you mentioned that you lost a fellow sailor, you know, that must have been really difficult for you, um, during your time in, what did you do to manage all of those different feelings? Because it seemed like, you know, there was a lot going on and then you had to deploy. Um, how did you manage that?
2: Yeah, you know, it was, it was a, it was an eye opener, right? Cause I was, 19, 18 at the time, fresh out of high school, um, didn't really, didn't have really death in the family, um, so it was it was difficult. My first deployment, um, which like I said, was about a month after, uh, a month after I stepped, uh, stepped foot on board, uh, and it was, it was, it was an eye-opener, right? I didn't know how to react to my feelings, I didn't know who to talk to, right? And my division, uh, which is the CC division, the communications division, uh, were there for me, um, and of course, as a group. You know, we were battle buddies and we went through it together uh, and they helped me understand what those emotions are because uh, we didn't really have a chaplain on board. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you really had to work within your own division and hope that you had a good division uh, to work with, which I did.
1: That's good to hear. Um, was there anybody in particular that stood out that, that helped you? And like, what was it that assisted you? I mean, was it just, you know, a, a chat or um, specific things that you specific tools that you used?
2: Yeah, there was a, a senior first class, you know, IT1 Randall um, and IT2 Ingram. They both pulled me aside at various points of the, you know, the first month of the deployment and, you know, really had that man-to-man talk with me that I necessarily didn't have with my father. Um, and that really helped me because that first month of deployment, it was so, so much uncertainty that, you know, there was all kinds of emotions to deal with. And, you know, after they took me up to the fan room and, and you know, talked to me like a man and put it put it to a perspective um, that I could understand coming from a really rough part of Pennsylvania uh, really gave me that, uh, you know, insight on how to manage my emotions, especially during the deployment as my first deployment and only being in the Navy for about five months
0: at that time. Right. Yeah. There's so much you deal with, uh, especially in the military, right. When you get out, similar situation where I, I got in right out of high school as well. And you're not, I don't think you really prepare yourself for what you see in the military. I went in during peacetime, but I still saw some atrocious things happen, uh, in the military during my time, whether it was going to Karachi Pakistan or, or being in Kuwait. And, and so you, you don't really understand how to process all that stuff. But as Cynthia said, there, you know, there are a lot of things that you can do, and I think finding a mentor or somebody that can be sort of that guiding light for you in the military is really important. That being said, when you have to, you have that heart-to-heart, that talk, that when they, like you said, they talk to you like a man, what did that do for you to your trajectory in the military and your career going forward?
2: You know, I think it was actually pretty simple. It came down to just kind of, you know, suck it up. Uh, Just keep going at it, no matter how big the mountain is in front of you that you have to climb. Uh, And that really stuck with me even to this day uh, when it comes to business, because there's, you know, such huge hurdles and challenges that you face. Um, And in some of those conversations, you know, as civilians, you don't often get that kind of um, man-to-man conversation. A civilian, usually it's like, hey, why is this grown man talking to me like this, right? Um, But in the military, you have to be more receptive to those, you know, feelings and what your colleagues tell you, especially since you're so close together for long periods of time, uh, you can't get away from that. When you have those conversations, it puts in that perspective uh, for you and the people around you on what really matters um, and how to focus and not get caught up in the noise from either day-to-day activities or um, even your near-term type of activities. So think in long-term, right? Think in post-deployment, thinking post-Navy yard, uh, shipyard, you know, thinking, Um, You know, after my four-year term, you know, do I re-enlist? Do I do shore duty? You know, those types of things. And those hard conversations early on are the best to have. And people should not shy away from them. Um, You know, even if you are the most manly man type of man, you you should still have those conversations uh, with somebody who's been doing it for a much longer time, you know.
1: Right. Take me back to, you know, when you finished your four years, um, did you decide to re-enlist or what prompted you to get out?
2: Yeah, great question. Um, so actually my my uh, NC or my recruiter on the ship uh, told me uh, told me at a late time that I was up for shore duty. Um, and by the time I got to a detailer, the detailer was like, hey, you're going to Nick Dan's land. And if you're part of the IT and Radioman community, it sounds like a really cool place to go because it's basically like the internet service provider for all the ships on the Atlantic. But when you get there, it was actually a you know a very depressing you know, a lot of people were getting shipped over the sandbox, and I just had done, you know, two, basically two and a half deployments in four years plus an in-serve On top of that, I wasn't ready for that for that type of thing. So basically, my recruiter told me late uh, for reenlistment, and then at the time, I already had a handful of certifications and a lot of civilian qualifications uh, to leave, which I was really sad about because, you know, I came in at 2006 as an E1 and left um, 2010 as an E5. Um, and already had some pretty impressive certifications and awards from the fleet. But, you know, my recruiter failed me. And so I made the best decision for myself, uh, which was getting out and hitting the workforce immediately.
1: Yeah, so I, I know you from uh, Operation Code and our chats because you're in my, uh, my geographical area. Uh, folks listening don't know you. I know you mentioned that you grew up in Pennsylvania. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to go home to this small town, you know, after serving in the military and being abroad.
2: Yeah, well, you know, what's interesting is, you know, when you're either you're doing a deployment or you get back from a deployment or you're done with your service, you, you have this fear of missing out on things, whether it's with the family or your hometown or your community, your church, you know, whatever it may be. Right. Um, but in real, in reality, nothing really happens. So, you know, when I got out or at least when I got home from a deployment, I'm thinking, Oh man, six months, four years, a lot has happened. And you find out nothing really, not really changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, same people doing the same stuff. Um, and when I, when I saw that, I realized that no matter where I went in this world, Um, I was going to be successful, whether I had my local community behind me or my family behind me or if I went and I found a new community. Because, you know, people are just waiting to welcome you, uh, whether it's a local community, a tech community, um, a design or a more area-focused community. There's always people there with open, warm arms. And so I've always went where the opportunities were. Um, And that's what I always give advice to people just transitioning out of the military is, you know, really go where the money and the jobs are. Don't go back home, um, especially if there's nothing there for you Mm -hmm. other than your immediate family because your potential, especially with your service background, is so huge, and people don't understand that value uh, when they leave, right? They think it was just another job, um, but there's so much there to unpack uh, for both your personal growth and your career growth that people don't understand.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting concept. I, I think that most people who have served, some people know exactly what they're going to do with the time that they served. Other people get out and they're kind of floundering and they don't really know their own worth. Um, and it's definitely a shame because it sounds like you grew a lot in the four years that you were in. Um, you had a good sense of what you were capable of. you know. So uh, lead us down the road of like when you started to think about owning a business. Like, How did you get there?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, it's so weird. I... Uh, You know, a lot of entrepreneurs talk about like lemonade stands and like all this cool stuff. You know, I was never that kind of entrepreneur growing up. um, But the more interesting thing was, is my parents were entrepreneurs. I grew up in a video store. And this is before Blockbuster. So late 80s, early 90s, I grew up in my parents' video store selling candy or, you know, renting the latest, uh, you know, Disney flick or cool B rated horror movie, right? Um, and I was like three or four at the time, but I love the concept of just serving people, um, mm-hmm. whether it was just giving them their candy bar or giving them the the um, index card for them to fill out for what rental they were taking out. Right? If you remember those days. Yep. <laughs> um, right. So just just giving people something and being a part of something. And that's it was never it was never about money or about status. It was just always about giving and there's many ways for you to give. You know, you can always volunteer, Peace Corps, and all those types of things. But I always like giving in a, business concept, in a business context because oftentimes when you work for an organization, they're more likely to not give to their employees or to their customers. Uh, and so that really resonates with me to build a culture and organization where I can share and give uh, to not just my friends and family, but to customers and prospects that I can best with our products and services.
1: Right. And I I think Yeti cloud really is a unique concept. Like tell everybody what, how did you come up with this concept? Because once you mention it, it's like, yeah, why didn't we have that already? Like, you know, it's just so clear to me. Um, But you really tapped into something that's needed in the industry.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's such a mixed, uh, a mixed answer because there's, there's, you know, the founder's mindset there's the markets mindset, there's what's come before you, and then there's, of course, what's going to come next. And there's a lot of variables in that. And when it comes to enterprise software, or especially the, the problem space that we're trying to solve for, which is you know, solving those IT issues that you have on your servers, on your computers, on your devices, whether it's applications, peer infrastructure, um, our other products that you may use, like third-party platforms like Salesforce or Google, right? And we want to basically solve all of those IT challenges on the spot for our customers in real time without having to talk to an IT admin or help desk or a tier one level support person. Uh, because oftentimes, you know, as end users of an application, like let's say your email stops working, you call the help desk, you necessarily don't care about how that problem gets solved. All you care is that problem does get solved, right? And so, in the finder in the founder's mindset or my mindset, it's like, hey, I could solve that problem. Right? And then we go to the market, we go to the buyer and we say, Hey, you know, all these IT tickets and all these issues that you have with we can remediate and solve for, the buyer's not interested in that. Even though that's what the end user wants, the buyer's like, Hey, how can I make my people better, more efficient, without getting rid of them per se? When I say getting rid of, making them irrelevant or they don't have work to, to work on if we automate those things. And so it's a challenge there. Um, and so we try to find organizations that are either young, um, or very creative like us. And we really try to sell to them. You know, we don't try to, to talk to companies that have a very legacy approach because oftentimes they're not open-minded. They're still you know managing their IT devices and equipment with spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, it's 2020. You would think that, you know, your email should work, right? When you turn on your computer, things should just work, right? When you go to a website, the page should load fast and look great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not the case. And especially during COVID, it really showed how fragile um, a lot of a lot of companies' IT infrastructure is. So it's made us really relevant from that perspective. And it wasn't something that anybody could forecast, uh, but we did get there early. Uh, we secured a spot. And we we're one of the few vendors that offer a fully automated remediation solution, um, and the DOD is starting to pick up on that now and very interested in utilizing our applications for some more fighter capabilities, which is really cool. But at the end of the day, we'll go um, where we're most relevant and where we'll add the most value, right? So if, if DOD wants to do uh, more manned and and more spreadsheets, um, then that's fine, right? We'll find more startups and mid-market companies that have that mindset of serving their customers the best way that they can, just like we do.
0: Tim, you touched on something really interesting about the companies that are more legacy minded, don't really think of innovation as sort of being a high priority. A lot of companies, as they're growing or as they're starting, really struggle with how they identify who those people are, who those companies are. How would you say uh, you've been able to figure that out? How do you identify companies that, in their mindset internally, they're like, we want to make innovation a top priority? How do you find those companies?
2: Yeah, that's a really great question. So we use a couple of different prospecting systems, uh, but one of the more creative, there's a couple there's a couple of creative things that we do. The first one is, since we target companies with a lot of um, cloud infrastructure, so if they're utilizing Amazon Web Services or Microsoft Azure uh, or all these cloud, cool cloud platforms, um, these companies typically will spend more than like $30,000 a month. And the companies that spend more typically invest more in innovation. So that's a clear indicator to us that we use cloud spend data to target companies that are obviously investing a lot in innovation, um, especially in cloud technologies, because you don't necessarily know the outcome and benefits you're going to get by moving from such a CapEx heavily heavily modeled um, infrastructure to an OpEx, uh, you know, sort of level model, you know, level of, uh, or model of infrastructure, I should say. And it gets really interesting because it's such a huge mind chip, especially for government. If you talk to, um, you know, public sector, they they still don't know how to answer this question. They dance around it a lot. Um, and what we realize is that companies that know how to operate really well with an OPEX budget and that spend quite a bit on cloud services are more likely to take a look at a young startup like us and take a bet um, on us as a an early customer, right? And we talk early customer, we're talking about sub 50 customers, right? So today, you know, we have about 15 customers to date. Um, You know, we could have more customers, but we do kind of fit in that enterprise mid-market landscape where the buyers do require a little bit more hand holding and awareness into the capabilities that we bring into their environment. Did that answer your
0: question? Or oh, a hundred percent. I think you know, as an entrepreneur, it's really hard, right? You want you start your company, and then the next thing is, okay, I've, I've started this company. Like, how do I find customers? And I think you you kind of glossed over it, but it's a really important point about the cloud spend, right? Understanding what they're spending on their cloud is really a good indicator of their tolerance for innovation or tolerance for I- experimenting in in innovation. When you when you talk about that they're willing to take a bet on early stage companies how do you what what is it that you articulate that you're able to say take a bet on us and they go mhm we're going to do that like <laughs> that doesn't happen all the time what how are you able to articulate that
2: yeah it's actually really it's actually a really simple answer and i and i swear um, to a higher being that this is really what it takes in the beginning of the sales conversation, you'd be right up front and you tell them like, Hey, we're a young company. We've been around the block for two years. We have these types of customers and we're aggressively grown. And and this is why going with us is the best way. And you just be right up front that you're young and you're hungry and you're ambitious. And there's buyers out there that, that notice that and see that. And they're like, Oh man, I know I can get three times more value as these small guys versus the market leader or the large incumbent. Right. And, Those are the buyers where you have to make very clear right up front, we're young, small, and hungry. And once you do that, you'll know right away if you got a sale or not. You'll know either they'll start looking at their phone, they'll start looking at emails, they'll look at each other kind of confused. Then you know you're not in the right place and somebody didn't uh, prospect or do discovery the right way.
1: Yeah, I want to ask you, like, d- how many times um, have you told people, the cl- potential clients, that you're um, a vet-owned business? Um, does that have any play to do with, you know, them supporting you? I mean, are people aware that you're a veteran-owned founder?
2: Some companies, and it's kind of by design. And what I mean by that is there's certain verticals and industries um, that have a mandated push for set aside small businesses, for mm-hmm. example, energy is one of those. So you talk to any, um, you know, energy provider, you know, about twenty to thirty percent of their budget has to be spent on, on set aside businesses, right? Minority, veteran, uh, you know, social uh, type of startups, right? Um, and so if if I'm talking to a, a a more of a regulated industry or vertical, I'll I'll mention that just because that might even be just a sale, whether or not we're a hundred percent fit. Um, just mentioning that they'll be like, oh, that's a check in the box. Um, and there's even some cases where some of these companies will have a preferred like veteran vendor, and you'll sub, you know, the contracts, whether it's software agreements uh, or other agreements through that primary veteran uh, vendor, just so you can do business with that particular entity or, or um, uh, business. So it's so if you're a civilian or, or a non-veteran listening to this podcast, you should really partner up with veterans companies, because that could be potentially a, a vehicle or a channel for you to tap into. A lot of people don't know that. And I'm not even talking about government set-asides. I'm talking about mostly state-led um, set-asides for regulated industries like energy and such. Right. right. When, you're talk- um, and- Sorry,
0: when, you, when you're talking... Sorry, when you're when you talking about... I, I think we talked about it a second ago, but when you're talking about your value and your why and why you're doing this and, and how... How important is that to communicate that to your customers? Your your why and and the and how you articulate the value of your service.
2: Yeah, so this is a really interesting question because um, I would give you different answers depending on the type of company we are, and I'll kind of explain. So, we sell primarily software on premises, right? So even if they have a cloud provider, our software gets installed in their environment. Um, it's a very high touch type of sale. They take a little longer. Um those customers, they typically don't care about the why um per se. They don't care about why Yeti Cloud or who Yeti Cloud is. Just just know that if they give us a Cadillac, we'll give them back a the Cadillac in the same condition, if not better. Right. If if we answer those simple questions, they'll do business with us. But if you know we're talking to somebody who doesn't understand that or hasn't had that context, um, they're more likely to just, you know, go down a different path. Right, whatever that may be. Did that answer your question?
0: Absolutely. I, I think that's a, a great way to put it. It's also a great place to, to pause. We're, gonna, we're talking to Tim Marcinowski of Yeti Cloud and we're gonna, on the Veteran Founder Podcast. We're
2: going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to healthcare, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to healthcare, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridges2change.com.
0: And we're back. We've been talking to Tim Arsnowski of Eddie Cloud here on the Veteran Founder Podcast, right here on the Startup Radio Network. You know, all the founders that we bring in, they talk a lot about you know the, the value and, and the why and what they're doing with their business. I, I want to talk a little bit about what you've learned throughout this entire process. What do you think set you up for success uh, as it relates to your military service? Like, what do you think you learned from that experience that has helped you grow this business?
2: Yeah, it's such an interesting question because literally right before this podcast, I just came from uh, a therapy session where I was just talking about one of the key takeaways I got from being in the military. That's really helped me um, help me in my life, whether it's with personal goals or business um, has been necessarily like this skill to, to brainwash yourselves to complete a task. Um, and I don't like using the word brainwash. Maybe we could say structure. Um, but when I create this false reality or visualize um, what success looks like and how I achieve it, and I just keep iterating that over my mind um, to the point where it becomes a fact, <laughs> right, in my mind, um, it makes completing very difficult, challenging tasks much easier or less uh, full of anxiety or uncertainty, like just knowing that, you know, you're, you believe in yourself and you've thought this through and you, you convince your per- you convince yourself that you're the person or team, uh, to get what it is, what you want. Um, that's been one of the hugest valuable skills that I've taken out of the military and deployed across a variety of different systems, uh, that I have in my life. whether so like I said, personal or, or business.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And then, when when you're talking about the lessons that you've learned throughout your time as an entrepreneur, what what do you think you've learned in the in the mistakes that you've made? You know, we, every week we ask the same question for founders: is there's always that that one thing, that thing that you've screwed up so badly that you you learned a lot because it could have scuttled your entire progress. What do you think that thing is that you've done and you know, we we say it every week, but there's multiple things that founders uh, can point to. But but what's that one thing you think you can do that you've done in, in your entrepreneurial journey that you've screwed up so badly? You've learned from it. You're never going to do that again.
2: <laughs> I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie to you. This is a horrible question for me, just because you know part of that giving everything you got is just believing that you do no wrong. And Cynthia could tell you that about me is you know, I do no wrong. Um, so I don't dwell too much on like regrets or mistakes or bad choices. I actually never spend much time in the past. Most of the time, my mind's in the future. Um, it's actually hard to get certain types of answers from me just because I'm telling you about the future state of something when really you want to know like what we're going to have for dinner tomorrow or what's going on tomorrow. Right. (laughs) Um, so it's a very tough question. I don't really have an example, um, off the top of my head. Um, of course i failed and miserably, I just can't. Remember an instance where it's affected me a, in a big way. Sure, it made me dwell on it much. But I apologize for that.
0: No, no, I think it, it's it's fine. I think you know th- there are commonalities that every founder makes, right? Things like hiring the wrong person, or not getting something in writing, or you know, uh, thinking that someone's going to do the work that they said they were going to do, and that didn't happen, or you know, trusting an infrastructure partner that screwed up. Like they are just. There are a lot of different things. I think, um, you know, if if you can't think of one, it's, it's fine, but when you're, when you think about when you're, when you're building the business, what are some things that you look out for that you make sure that won't screw up your business?
2: Um, yeah, that's That's another good question. So my thought process around this is I actually start at the acquisition and work backwards. Um, and I know that sounds kind of weird, um, but you know, business, it's kind of boring, right? Like you, you go after business, right? You, you tell them, you know, why you're there, if they want to listen to that, right? (laughs) A lot of times they don't, especially in the enterprises. Um, and you kind of wait around you do some implementation and and that's it. So, um, so what I like to do is think about, Hey, my business is going to get ready to to be sold. Okay. What's that transit? What's that transaction look like? then walking backwards, how can I get my house in order so that whenever I'm ready to you know, sell my baby, do I have everything, all the ducks in a row, all the T's crossed and I's dotted? Um, and I say it's weird because a lot of people don't really think that way. Um, and I wish there was some better advice I can give. But really, I always start at the end and work back. And it's really given me this insight of doing things the right way the first time instead of trying to go back and... Fix something or try to make something look better than what it really is, um, and we've been really successful at, at taking that approach. Like every time we do our financials, to our bookkeeping, to um, our contracts, we're always thinking about certain types of clauses that might be a, um, a big thing. And I know some founders don't have that luxury because, you know, oftentimes you're gonna you're gonna scrap together these deals um, and pull a hairy mail or uh, uh, hail mary, and you just hope. Um, that this lands, and you're banking on that. Um, but if you're not in that world, and you're in a world where you're getting consistent, you know, cash flow in, you start thinking more about, okay, how do I make sure I'm doing all the right things? And I start from the end and work backwards. It definitely really...
1: sounds like uh, you do a lot of self-assessment, you know, to find out like who, who you are as a person. How can you reiterate? How can you refine not just your thinking process, but also your business processes? Um, so it, it, was there a lot of hard work that you did to get to that point where you um, realize, okay, I'm going to reset and reevaluate um, and reiterate? Or, you know, was it? does it just come instinctually to you? How, how does your... How, how does that process work in your mind to overcome something, a challenge? Like you said, you know, I don't look backwards. I don't dwell on the failures. I move forward. How did you get to that phase?
2: Yeah, this is this is a really tough question. I feel like I got the, t- the toughest question on the show.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's because I know um, you.
2: <laughs> yeah, so this is this is a good one. I'm trying to unpack on where I start. Um,
0: I, I think what, so, what what's interesting is just the way you your thought process as an entrepreneur it is unique right so i think that's that's what we're trying to unpack here is you know how how do you come to these conclusions how do you how do you process these things in a way that allows you to not only just reverse engineer but go go over obstacles when they come uh, that may circumvent your ultimate goal
2: yeah, you know, and I think back to even an earlier answer I gave you around you know wanting to serve people at a very young age, and whether this is a strength or an insecurity, but you know there's this thing about me that really wants to please people. And so when I'm thinking about an acquisition of my company, I think about how can I make my company wrapped up in the prettiest bow and hand it off to the next um, to the next uh, taker, right? Um, I'm thinking along those lines. Now, am I, like, depicting this vision in my head? No, but ultimately I'm thinking that I want to make sure that whoever we're serving or handing the reins off to, they got it, uh, and they're going to be amazing at it, right, whether that's with our product, whether that's with the company itself. Um, And that goes to when I was a child working in the video store and just wanting to really serve people and getting that instant gratification. I mean, my background is IT operations, which – if anybody's familiar with it, it's, it's a huge um, pleasure feeling type of thing because you're constantly firefighting and solving problems that a lot of people um, can't solve. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of that's built into me from just serving people at the video store to solving um, simple to complex issues from an operational perspective um, to dealing with relationships with people, making sure that they're, they're happy, they're good, um, and that I give them my shirt off, you know, my shirt off my own back to them. If I could.
1: Yeah. Where did you uh, learn a lot of these skills from? Did somebody mentor you? And then also, how do you pay that forward with yourself mentoring other people?
2: Yeah. So, you know, it's one of the cool things about uh, the military, at least my experience in the Navy was, and Josh talked about this earlier around, The mentor protege program. So when you get on a ship, right, like you have to find a mentor, whether or not you like that person or think they're going to give you the best advice, you have to find a mentor, which puts you in a pickle because you don't want to get a crappy mentor, right? So I've always um, had a knack for picking good mentors. Um, And, you know, I just want to name two of my favorite mentors uh, Zachary Morris, which was a CT2 uh, in the Navy on the USS Mitchell at the time. Uh, And another one, Sandeep. Um, who lives out in Chicago. There have been two great mentors um, that have given me two sheds of light, right? Zach, having a military background, gives me that that toughness and grit, and Sandeep gives me that human-centered element to giving back and focusing on things that really matter. Um, And, you know, just my upbringing, you know, growing up in a a poor area of Pennsylvania where uh, coal hasn't been a thing, so I grew up in the coal region, um, and community was everything. So giving back to your community, uh, your friends and family, you know, believing in you know, what good is having things if you don't share them with your friends. And that was part of the upbringing of mine and then finding great mentors to instill those beliefs over time. Reinforcing that is key because, you know, a lot of people pay for a coach or a mentor or they don't pay for a mentor, but they have a mentor. Right. And they'll use that they leverage that person for a year. And then they're like, I'm good. I got my mentorship. And mm-hmm. it's like, no, it's a reinforcement thing. You have to continuously reinforce these beliefs and thoughts. Um, if you want to stay on that path that you've carved out in your head, um, whether that's two years or, or 20 years,
1: Right. And the great thing about mentorship is that you're both a teacher and a student. You know, I think that each dynamic, the relationship changes you. So as you learn something from somebody else and you pass it forward, there's something about that dynamic too. teaching a newbie or teaching somebody that's younger, that's trying to get into the, the industry. Um, it reinforces on you and forces you to reflect on your own life, on your own, um, trials and tribulations and successes. And that relationship kind of defines who you are too. So I kind of think it's both a give and a take, which is really unique.
2: Yeah. And a weird thing, you know, that a lot of people don't, don't talk about, um, too, that really, that really helped me out from a mentor from like a mentor protege perspective was there was this, this guy in the Navy, um, his name is Nick Pierce. He was IT two um, at the time. Uh, he's actually a really good friend to this day. He was extremely tough, um, like from a supervisor to a leader. Um, he was extremely tough. And at the time, I was young, right, and I thought you know I was rebellious and you know f you, and you know, I was just you know not listening to whatever he was directing me to do. Um, but then over time, I've really appreciated that whole toughness and hardness and the focus. Um, Because what I realized was that you can't know everything, right? And and when you go into a military branch or even in business, there's so many variables that can happen, especially during wartime or during large strategic deals. There's a lot of variables that can happen, right? Even things that go on much deeper personal levels. Um, And Nick taught me that no matter how tough things get, most people have good intentions, Right, and when you realize that, you start becoming less defensive and more of like a team player slash, um, just like a dynamic person that can work through multiple types of environments and situations. Which, at the end of the day, as entrepreneurs, like that's what we do. We navigate convoluted systems that make absolutely no sense, oftentimes are completely stupid, um, but we do it anyway just because we love the pain and the and the grit. Um, And you know, Nick Pierce. Um, as my supervisor at the time taught me that, but it took me many years to for it to really sink in, just because I was a little rebellious. Uh, it three at the
0: time. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll kind of echo what you said about the mentors. It's first of all, it's really hard to find the right mentor because it's a crapshoot. You don't, you know nothing about this person other than what you've seen, and so you're hoping that that interaction is going to lead to success. I, I, like you, got really lucky. I My second ship, the last ship I was on was an FFG, the Gone, but it was the commander of that ship who saw I was really struggling and was just waiting for my time to get out. And we connected over art. I was an animator. He was a cartoonist. And so we would spend evenings drawing cartoons in his stateroom. Some lowly little uh, E3 and an OC5 or OC6, I should say, sitting in their stateroom, you know, drawing cartoons at the end of the night before we all hit the, the, hit the hay. Um, and even to this day, I still uh, communicate over in the Pentagon, uh, Captain David Allen, really great guy. But it's really hard to find that right mentor as you transition. How have you supplemented that? How do you keep bu- bringing in people that help you with not only your business, but other things in life?
2: Yeah, that's that's a good one for sure. Um, so you just, I'll, I'll tell you what, if I find a good mentor, I, I cling on to, to him or her uh, pretty tight for at least a couple of years. Um, but, you know, selfishly, I look at the value that I get from the mentor, right? Because you grow um, and you outgrow your mentors. Um, and, you know, you might leverage that mentor for five years. But after five years, you might be at a different point in your life where you need to find somebody to take you to that next level. Right and doing that self awareness check, like Cynthia said earlier, um, that I do so well. Uh, a lot of people don't do that so well. Get better at that.
1: So yeah. So what's in the future of Yeti Cloud? Where do you see yourself in the business in you know a year from now, five years from now?
2: Yeah. I mean, honestly, I just wish to hope to build a culture of innovation. Um, you know, where we celebrate experimentation. Uh, it's really huge for both my co-founder Pete and I. Uh, to build a company where we can bring in really intelligent people and give them a space where they can thrive. Um, even if they're brilliant jerks, um, a lot of people, a lot of times people talk about, oh, uh, you know, don't hire brilliant jerks, but um, that doesn't mean that they're you can't work with them. It just means that they need some more guidance, right? And so they, they got something and they're misunderstood. It's just a matter of taking the time and care um, to build a culture and place where people, even people that are jerks, um, can change and thrive in. And really that's just like a hope and dream for me. Now in a year or two, you know, we're not going to be much bigger than what we are today. We might hit 20 people um, by the end of next year, but at the end of the day, as long as the company is doing really cool stuff, um, that's all that matters to me. If we get investments, if we get amazing customers or we get bad customers, as long as everybody on the team gets to do Um, their specialty and they get to thrive doing that thing, whatever that may be, whether it's design uh, or prototyping. I just want to give them a place for them, a home for them to do that.
0: That's amazing. Tim, it's been great just spending some time uh, hearing your story and your background and learning more about Yeti Cloud. Where can people find you online?
2: Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn. Um, So I'm LinkedIn, uh, Tinsky. I often go by um, just because in the Navy, when you have a crazy last name, like Marcinowski, you know, people <laughs> give you that nickname ski. Yeah. Uh, but you can find me on LinkedIn Tim Marcinowski or Tim ski is my handle on there. Um, or you can follow my dog, um, Skeeter the Shih Tzu on Instagram. Uh, I think it's kind of like 14,000 followers. Uh, we have an, we have an international store. So if you're in Quake or you're deployed and you want a, a Skeeter a coffee mug, a water bottle, t-shirt, whatever, you know, you're, More than welcome to purchase one with Ship International. Uh, But, yeah, those are two places that I hang out the most. Um, I just got back into Qatar. um, So if anybody wants to hit me up and talk about Qatar or Go programming um, or other type of nerdy things, you know, just reach me at the Operation Code Slack channel. um, Or you can email me at tim at yeticloud.com.
0: That was going to be my next question, where we can find the business online. But thank you for the backstory, because now I want all the merch. So I want to see Skeeter. <laughs> and I want to see Skeeter. Yes. Yeah, so I'm following Skeeter now. Um, but Tim, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on and telling your story. I really appreciate it. And good luck. to, uh, And congrats on all your success.
2: Thank you so much, Josh and Cynthia. Thanks for having me. And if there's anything I could do for a community member uh, or somebody transitioning, like I said, please reach out to me, especially during LinkedIn. I'll help you, redirect you. Um, or just give you some tidbits, whether it's raw or sugar-coated, however you prefer the delivery, I'll give it to you.
0: (laughs) We know you will. All right, guys. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast right here on the Startup Radio Network. Tune in every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific. Listen, learn, get shit done. We'll see you guys next week.
2: You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.